This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 18th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The opioid crisis is a misnomer, according to Cato senior fellow and surgeon Jeff Singer. He says a close examination of the data will reveal that the opioid crisis is really a heroin crisis. And he argues that states are primed to move in the wrong direction with respect to that crisis. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Health Policy Summit earlier this month. The opioid crisis has driven a lot of states and the feds to make some changes to uh, policy that I think you argue are counterproductive or at least ineffective. So what are states doing that they just absolutely shouldn't be doing? Well, one of the things the states have been doing for quite some time now is uh, implementing prescription drug monitoring programs or PDMPs. Uh, Actually, some of these were around in the 1990s, but by 2010, uh, 37 states had implemented them, and now every state has implemented them, with the exception of uh, Missouri, which has been uh, problematic, but it's implemented on on, on the county level in most of Missouri. So um, we've had a lot of years of experience of these prescription drug monitoring programs, and what they do is um, they keep track of every prescription uh, given out to a patient and written by a doctor. And it's a surveillance system, basically. And then doctors are given reports. Uh, It varies from state to state, but doctors are given reports of uh, their prescribing numbers in the past quarter, and they're compared to their colleagues. Um, And it's not uh, broken down on a per capita patient basis. It's just total number of prescriptions written. So you could have written a lot of prescriptions because we have a lot of patients, but it's just the raw number. And that is, uh, in some states, uh, um, it's being used as a way of finding what uh, are suspected as uh, guys operating pill mills. But uh, in most states, it just uh, has the effect of uh, intimidating physicians into not wanting to be identified as outliers. In addition, um, it's supposed to uh, pick up uh, uh, doctor shoppers, uh, because you, if you do uh, check the monitoring program, um, you're supposed to be able to, de- to detect that there's a patient who's seeking a, a narcotic from you that's gotten three prescriptions from three different doctors in the last month. Um, so, um, the, first of all, that the date we have some good studies now to suggest that not only is it not working because. Obviously, the majority of states have been doing this for quite some time, at least since 2010, and overdoses are going up, not down. Um, But um, a couple of studies, one that came out this past October from Purdue University, and one came out from University of Pennsylvania in May, suggested that it may be serving to drive uh, illicit opioid users to the more dangerous heroin and fentanyl, because if they're finding it difficult to obtain uh, their um, opioid of choice. They just get the, the cheaper and easier to obtain heroin and fentanyl. And that's, possi- and, that, and that's, of course, more dangerous and easier to overdose on. All right. So what have states done to limit the ability of patients to have a steady supply of the uh, opioids? That I, and I'm, I'm presuming that, the, that if not half then the majority of people who are receiving opioids are doing it because they do are experiencing pain and need to deal with it. Right. That's another thing that they shouldn't be doing, by the way. Um, as of this past summer, 
uh, 17 states have implemented uh, prescription uh, restriction numbers, and uh, many more state legislatures are considering it. So it's really something that uh, we need to get legislators aware of. They, they should not do this because, the, number one, it's not evidence-based. Um, back in 2016, the CDC uh, issued guidelines, and in their guidelines, they cited uh, one or two studies that suggested that with uh, op opioid continued use for greater than seven days, the risk of addiction increases. But the CDC and its guidelines didn't recommend putting any caps on how many days prescriptions uh, should be. It simply it was more of a, like an FYI kind of thing, like uh, clinicians should keep this in mind when they're writing prescriptions for their patients. Um, and of course, on a case-by-case -case basis, this might influence their judgment. That's the way it was worded. Well, unfortunately, a lot of uh, people in the, in the public policy world jumped on this and they said, well, that's easy then. Let's just make it where you can't have a prescription for more than seven days supply, except in certain circumstances. First state to do that was Massachusetts. But now uh, 17 states have done it. My own state of Arizona is uh, considering it in its next legislative session. And aside from the fact that um, it's interfering with, of course, the ability of the doctor to make judgments and the patient-doctor relationship. There are a lot of people who are in severe pain who need a longer supply than a seven-day supply. In some states, they're talking about five-day supply. And um, because it's a controlled substance, you can't just phone in another prescription for it. So in, in most cases, they have to, in pain, get to your office to get a prescription so they can get a refill and they have to do it again and again, so it's not practical. But interestingly, just this past summer, a really uh, important article came out in the Journal of Substance Abuse by uh, very respected uh, researchers at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, University of Utah, and uh, I'm, I'm now forgetting the, the third one, but another uh, very respected uh, research center. And they pointed out that the decisions that states are making to put limitations on prescriptions is not evidence-based, that the study, uh, the studies to which the CDC referred, their authors admitted that they were very limited and had flaws in it, and they recommended further study. Um, and th so these, uh, this recent uh, piece that was in Journal of Substance Abuse uh, encouraged states to, to not move so fast on this because we really don't know if this will make a difference. Other things states uh, are doing that are in the right direction uh, are taking steps to make naloxone, which is the antidote to uh, opioid overdose, more available. Uh, now every single state in the District of Columbia has some sort of uh, policy in place to make it more available. Some more liberal than others. <clears throat> the, one of the problems is that uh, uh, naloxone is categorized as a prescription drug, and so it has to be given by a, uh, has to be prescribed. So the way many states are getting around this is, every state has their own scope of practice laws, and according to the FDA's requirements on prescription drugs, a prescription drug needs to be prescribed by a, a healthcare practitioner licensed by the state. So many states are saying the pharmacist is our healthcare pr practitioner that will allow to prescribe naloxone. Some states, what they're doing is they're having a, what's called a standing order, where the um, 
say the State Department of Health director was a physician, issues an order to all pharmacists and gives an order to first responders, uh, so it's a doctor's order, to distribute these naloxone uh, syringes or sprays to you know, to people when they come in search of it. Um, that's good, but it would be even better if naloxone was moved off of the prescription drug status into over-the-counter because there are a lot of, there's a lot of uh, research to suggest that people are hesitant to go up to a pharmacist because they don't want it to be kind of obvious that they have a, may have a, a problem that's stigmatized. And if they could just take it off the shelf, that would be a lot better. Now, the FDA... Uh, in 2016, said that they think it should be moved to over-the-counter. And they're inviting manufacturers to ask them to review it. That's a little too passive. Uh, and it, it, according to the FDA's own rules, uh, in order to move from uh, prescription to over-the-counter status, you could be petitioned by the manufacturer, by any interested party, which could be a state, or the commissioner himself can just decide, I want to take a look at this and do it. So they, I think they're being a little too passive. They should either do it or a state legislature should ask. I was about to ask related to that, um, how much of these actions, and I don't know how you would study this exactly, how much of these actions are actually making it less likely that people who are either chemically dependent on opioids or addicted to opioids um, will not seek assistance either through stigma or understanding that this is a problem this is a problem that uh people that the states would like to punish um so far there's very little evidence that any of these uh actions are, are getting people to seek help now an area that has been shown to benefit in that in that regard is uh development of uh, needle exchange programs and safe injection rooms uh the cdc by the way is uh, has encourages both. In the United States, there's several places that have clean needle exchange programs, and when you you come in and turn in your needle for something that's clean and sterile, so that it's one one of the advantages is it's designed to prevent the spread of disease. But at the same time, usually the people who give you the clean needle and syringe uh, offer you assistance, a direction to rehab. They try to get you help. And in some cases, people do get help that way. The, the disadvantage of it is once you get the needle, you, you go use it and then you sell it or you, you know, give it to someone else. So it's not, and you also could overdose and there's nobody around. That's why there were over a hundred safe injection rooms uh, around the developed world, including uh, everywhere actually except the United States. Uh, in a safe injection room, you can come in in the presence of a healthcare professional, uh, inject with a clean syringe needle, whatever you brought in to inject, you have to bring your own, and then um, they discard it so it gets discarded properly rather than getting shared. But there's also someone around with naloxone in case you overdose, and there's also someone around to counsel you, to try to get you help. Uh, experience in, in most of the developed world has been that these are superior to needle exchange programs because it reduces overdoses and gets people help. In this country, there's been a resistance. Every time a, a community wants to start one, a bunch of, of people oppose it and stop it because they think it's sending, quote-unquote, the wrong message, and they use this uh, derogatory uh, describer as they call it a shooting gallery. But that that would be something um, that could very positively get help. In addition, it's there are a lot of obstacles to uh, 
when people want to get help from, uh, uh, let's say, beyond uh, methadone maintenance or Suboxone, these are two popular and successful medication-assistant treatments for drug addiction, and it's so difficult for a community to even get a methadone program established. There's so many uh, restrictions on it by the DEA, and they're, so they're few and far between. It's often hard to get into one. And there are also a lot of restrictions on healthcare practitioners who would like to be able, who have an interest in this problem and would like to be able to just prescribe Suboxone. Suboxone, you can get prescribed by a, a practitioner, but so far only physicians can prescribe it. It's, it, it, it. I think it should be allowed for nurse practitioners and physician assistants, et cetera, to be able to prescribe it. In addition, there's so many um, uh, regulations and training you have to take, and there's limits on the numbers of patients. This should be these these rules should be liberalized so that any doctor who has an interest in helping people with with chemical dependency and would like to get involved in, and, and get word out that they do this in their practice should be able to, it should be easy for them to do that not difficult for people who have and this seems to be a sort of for some a natural progression you are prescribed opioids you become chemically dependent or you become addicted to opioids you find your supply of those threatened you move on to uh, heroin or fentanyl or something that is a much more powerful uh, drug and you're you're stuck, in a sense. Yeah, but that's actually uh, the exception to the rule. That's what you just described, is the narrative that everyone has bought into. Uh, but it's actually not based by the facts. If you look at the government's own data, uh, only twenty in 2016, only 23 percent of people who presented with drug overdoses even obtained a prescription from a doctor. Ever. In the last year. In the last year. Okay. Yeah. The, the great majority of people who are placed on. Uh, chronic opioids. And this has been studied uh, relentlessly. Uh, it keeps coming up with roughly the same number. It's roughly 1% of addiction. Now, there's a difference between addiction and chemical dependency. But there was a Cochrane analysis in 2010, another one in 2012. Actually, research going back to uh, the early 70s has, has shown a roughly 1% addiction rate to people on chronic opioids for pain. The, uh, as, as, uh, as our use of opioids increased uh, throughout the late 90s into the 21st century. And be because studies had shown that we were actually being much too stingy with opioids and people were needlessly suffering in pain. So uh, many respected entities, including the Department of Health and Human Services and the CDC and the National Institute of Drug Abuse, actually, were encouraging providers to be more liberal with the opioids. Well, obviously, um, the more opioids that are prescribed and produced, the more uh, are also available to be diverted into the illicit market for people who want to use them non-medically. In addition, there are always, in every field, there are bad apples. So uh, there are, uh, you know, doctors who, uh, I would describe them as not really doctors. They had MD degrees, and they were using them to basically make a living pushing drugs. There were some of them, and they were, of course, they got a lot of publicity. So there's no question that as as uh, opioids became more acceptable in, in the management of pain in the late 90s and into 21st century, the, the, their availability led to more opportunities for uh, non-medical use. But on the other hand, you take Europe, for example. Most people aren't aware of this, but Europe is also having an overdose crisis. In fact, a report from the European Union's version of the CDC just, just released this uh, this June, uh, they estimate that 79% of all overdose deaths in the EU 
are from opioids. And, and physicians in, in, uh, the Europe, in Europe in general, and this is cultural, they've always had a history of being much more stingy in prescribing opioids for their patients in pain than in the United States and Canada. And they still are. So they have a much lower prescription rate. And we see in our own data that as prescriptions have gone down, and prescriptions of um, powerful opioids have gone down 41% since 2010, and overall opioid prescriptions have gone down 13% since 2010, yet overdose rates are going up. And if you look at the mix of it, it's almost all, well, now it's about 60% heroin and fentanyl. So it's a very counterintuitive thing to say, well, we're, we're being more restrictive with opioids uh, at the, with the, with respect to the relationship between doctors and patients. And yet we see overdoses with the, on these specific chemicals, uh, going up. Right. And, 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 and I think that should signal to lawmakers that this is a much more complicated problem than they're, than they're probably prepared to deal with. That's right. We need to ask a question of why are more and more people turning to uh, mind-altering drugs? Uh, there are socio- There's also a lot of studies suggesting that in the, the counties that have lower socioeconomic levels have a higher opioid o- uh, overdose rate. There was a recent study out on that. So there's socioeconomic issues, there's sociocultural issues, but to, to think that it, it's directly related to doctors prescribing medications for their patient pain, it's, it's mistaken. And, and what we're ending up doing right now is we're making a lot of people who are really in pain suffer and go without. Some in desperation are turning to the illicit market and ending up, uh, unfortunately, dying from heroin and fentanyl overdoses. Jeff Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. We spoke at the Cato Institute's State Health Policy Summit held in Austin earlier this month. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.